0: Our passage this morning is 1 Peter 4, uh, 7 through 11. So let's, um, uh, for the, out of uh, just honoring God's Word, uh, let's stand together as we read this, and then uh, I'll pray for us. So this is 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The Apostle Peter says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled. as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Lord Jesus, will you bless uh, the preaching of your word and and the hearing of your word. Um, You are our rock and our redeemer. We pray that Jesus Christ would receive glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. So just for a few moments this morning, uh, we get to learn. Uh, I want you to think about this, because uh, I'm going to th- take quite a bit of time to set this passage up, and you're probably going to be thinking, man, is we ever going to get to the passage? But this is uh, important. Uh, it's been important in my life, just to think through that. This is one of the closest friends that Jesus, in his incarnate flesh, while he was doing ministry on earth, this was one of his closest friends, Peter. Peter, uh, think about him for many. You may know a lot about him just being growing up in the church and reading about him. He's a very passionate man. He, he's, uh, some people would say he's impetuous. And he spoke out first before he thought what he was going to say. Uh, he was very bold. Uh, he, he engaged people. Uh, he was, uh, you know, he was just this really dynamic person, this dynamic personality we see in Scripture. He's kind of the spokesman for the disciples to Jesus, and, and uh, just this amazing one. Of, he, he got to see, think about what Peter got to see. He watched Jesus heal people. He got to see Jesus calm a storm. He got to see Jesus cast out demons. He got to watch Jesus interact with people and show compassion. He got to watch him raise people from the dead. And he got, to, he got to watch the way Jesus loved and the way he was so passionate and compassionate and caring and kind and generous. He got to watch this human God-man, fully human, fully God-man do life. I mean, could you imagine just watching Perfection in humanity, the way that he loved the way that he engaged people, the way that he looked at people all of this was was, was part of part of Peter's interaction with him he he witnessed ultimate self-control and sober-mindedness he witnessed uh, just just this one who would serve people tirelessly just this past couple of weeks I was just thinking I've just been thinking reading through a harmony of the gospels and trying to get like the timeline of Jesus in my, in my head, uh, where he went next and what he did. And Capernaum is just this really amazing place that's like on my radar lately. Um, some archaeologists believe that Capernaum was probably this poor city because of the archaeological digs that they found. The stones are like rough cut and they're not smooth. And you, Matthew says that Jesus kind of made Capernaum his hometown after Nazareth said, eh, We don't want you anymore. Jesus went to Capernaum. Why would Jesus go to one of the poorest towns in the region where there's crippled, there's blind, there's lots of people that need help? Uh, Because it's just like Jesus to do that. Uh, And and so Capernaum, like this tireless, just this series of events jumped out at me. So Jesus gets in the boat to go across, go out on the lake with his disciples or his friends. A storm blows up. There's likely other boats on, on, their, on the lake too. They all likely flee back to Capernaum. And Jesus calms the storm. And then uh, he's tired, obviously. He's been sleeping in the boat. Gets up, calms the storm. And then the boat continues on uh, in what Alfred Edersheim believes is a night scene where he casts out a demon into the pigs and they fall off the cliff. And then they get back in the boat. They go back across the shore uh, to Capernaum, likely there's a big crowd waiting to see, man, all the boats returned from the Sea of Galilee after the storm, but Jesus and his disciples have not. So it's likely the next morning that they return. He shows up on the shore. There's a massive crowd. Somebody named Jairus comes up to him and says, hey, I'm, uh, I'm, my daughter is on the verge of death. Could you please come heal her? And then this crowd is crowding around him, t- thousands of people around him. Wanting to a piece of Jesus, and somebody reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. He turns to find her, heals her, and then he goes on his way to Jairus' house. I mean, it's just, Peter was there this whole time, witnessing this man of love do all these things in these series of events, this tireless serving of others. He watched Jesus' trial, he saw Jesus. Always give glory to his father. And most importantly, he saw Jesus come back to life. He witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Peter had been with Jesus. And I say the word with, with emphasis, with, with emphasis. Uh, There's a guy, I don't know if you've heard of a guy named Sky Jathani. I have not until this week. Um, but he he has this book that, called With. I have not read it, but my friend Tony Souter recommended it. I trust my friend Tony Souter, so you may want to grab it and read it. But he talks about these different aspects of our, our our faith and why we believe in Jesus. And he talks about all the kind of these false reasons that we believe which are one is under Jesus. I believe I'm under Jesus because if I'm under Jesus and submit to him, he'll bless me. So I'm really actually in a relationship with Jesus so that he'll bless me. Then he talks about living a life over Jesus, uh, that I live with these, I kind of live with these right principles. And if I do these right principles and ideas that Jesus teaches, then I'll have a good life. That's the second reason that some people believe in Jesus and want to follow him. Then he, then he says uh, a life from Jesus. Uh, Jesus is kind of this vending machine. I receive X, Y, and Z. That's why I believe. Ultimately, the Z is heaven. So I believe in Jesus because it benefits me. And then he has life for Jesus that I'm living my life with to find meaning and purpose of life. The reason I believe in Jesus is because it gives me meaning in life. And so all of those are not necessarily bad, but he makes the point that Jesus is actually the treasure of life. Jesus is the treasure. Not all the benefits that we receive. Those are awesome. But is Jesus your treasure? Peter is a man deeply in love with his friend and his Savior. Not just because of the benefits and the beauty of what Jesus has done, which has rescued us from sin and death and brought us into his eternal light. Praise be to God, if, if that were it, that would be enough. But he calls you and I friends. Do you know him? Have you been with him? Have you been with Jesus that you could characterize and know him and describe him? Kind of like Peter does. So, now we get to our text. I told you it was a long on-way ramp. Peter begins this section of the text that I chose for this, and he just says, the end of all things is at hand. Why, does he, why do we start there? The end of all things is at hand. This is like, I think it's, uh, part of this is because Peter has Jesus on his mind. All the New Testament authors have Jesus on their mind. And he says the end of all things is at hand. He's heard Jesus say the kingdom of God is at hand. And Peter is, is wondering and longing for this Jesus to return. I don't know if any of you have read Randy Alcorn's book on Heaven, but he's got some really cool concepts in there, some really neat truths that I've, I've never thought of before. And I think heaven is kind of uh, it's kind of like, how many of you like Christmas morning? Like Christmas morning is like, oh man, like you're so excited, the anticipation that Christmas Eve, the night before, you're, you're so excited, you get up early, and uh, I think that's what heaven's like. I think everybody in heaven is just waking up, if, if you wake up in the mornings, whatever that looks like, and, uh, and they're like, Jesus, is this it? Is this the day that you get to go back? Is this the day we get to go back with you and watch you redo everything and, and bring the final consummation in? I think that's Peter's attitude here, and he says, the end of all things is at hand. Every Christian throughout every age has that hope. Right, and we've heard through the pandemic like Jesus must be coming soon, maybe he is, uh but maybe in his mercy and patience, he'll tarry. So, what is this at hand the The end of all things is at hand and I think Peter's also excited about this because he knows that Jesus ushered in this whole new order of life, kind of had the world of Adam and the world of Jesus and And Jesus has ushered in this new climactic kingdom that has come, right? There's the kingdom that's already here. And you hear about the already and the not yet. Uh, Peter is talking about the right now. The already is, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus came, the king has come to earth and established his kingdom, it's here, it's growing, it's amongst you, it's in your family, it's in your heart, it's in your community. The kingdom is here. But there's also this tension of the kingdom is not fully here. So there's this not yet part of the kingdom. And Peter's talking about, so in the meantime, what are we doing the right now? It's kind of like in, in high school, I was an awful hitter, and uh, I have excuses for that. One would be that in my freshman year in high school, I sat in a lecture hall, kind of like this. I was sitting back kind of where my wife is, and I started writing on the board. Professor did, and I couldn't read the board. I was like, oh, I needed glasses. I might have been a good hitter back in high school. <laughs> Guys would come in the dugout, and they're like, did you see that curveball coming, the spin I'm like... I just saw a white thing coming towards the plate and swung. Um, so when I did get on base, I loved getting on base because I was fast. And so I would get on first base, and you know, if this is first base, I would get, get my lead. I would get a pretty big lead because I just loved to dive. I was like, Pete Rose was my hero. We can talk later about the Hall of Fame. Um, so I get off, lead off of first base, and where was I where was I ultimately trying to get to second base but ultimately I was trying to get to home and score All right so I would get this big lead and as soon as the pitcher made his move I was gone to, gone to second base but I was living in this tension right this oh man if he makes a move to first I got to get back quick cuz he's going to pick me off but if he commits to second I'm going So I was living like this the whole time, ready, clear-minded, controlled, thinking clearly, because if I got distracted and started thinking about like, oh, there goes a car on the highway or something, like (laughs) I'm totally toast, right? I'm picked off. So that's the feeling of, I think, that Peter has and that all believers that you and I should have, right? This year has been just crazy, crazy. And we live in this tension of, Jesus, are you coming back? What I, I'm ready to go home, but I'm also kind of here. So what do I do in the meantime as I'm living in this tension between the two? How do I live in what some people call the right now? What does it look like to live in the right now? Well, it's, Here's what Peter says he says therefore be self-controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers self-controlled and sober-minded clear serious alert for the sake of your prayers now why here's here's what I love to do I just love and I just don't know if uh, yeah, I've, I've just kind of, uh, I really am wrestling like as a preacher and as a follower of Jesus, how much do I preach about principle and how much do I tie the principle to the person of Jesus? And so I err on the side of tying it to the person of Jesus uh, in my life right now. So you may be going, man, this, like this is just kind of like exegete the passage and, and get, get through it, Robert. But I'm wrestling with this, right? Where do, Where does Peter come up with the words, I mean why is Peter saying be self-control and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers Is is Peter just kind of in this theological vacuum writing wonderful things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit Certainly he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit but I think one of the main jobs of the Holy Spirit is to refresh and remind our hearts of this wonderful person named Jesus who brought us salvation So why does Peter pick sober-minded, self-controlled? Because he'd just been with the most self-controlled person in the history of the universe. He just spent time with the most clear-minded person that has ever lived. And he says, right now, the thing that you can do for the sake of your prayers, because the worst thing for your prayer life is to be out of control, the worst thing for your prayer life is to not have a clear mind. Those things can kill prayer. And Peter says, I witnessed this Jesus who was sober-minded and self-controlled. And his prayers were beautifully said and heard in the submission to his, to his father. He, he watched this person do life and he says the next thing he he says in the right now so so the first thing in the right now is to be self-controlled and sober-minded how does that affect service how does it affect the way we serve and the means of grace in which we serve well if we're if we're not self-controlled and we're not clear in thinking through what God has given us to use to serve others then service ends up being about self and if those don't turn into prayers for people and prayers for serving others, then it becomes about self. That's the world of Adam sneaking in. And Peter's like, "No, Jesus has brought in a new world. Uh, he's changed everything." And then he says, in verse eight, "Above all, the second thing, what are we doing the right now? We keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. It's interesting in Romans 12, it's almost an exact parallel passage to Peter. I mean, it's love, serve, like those two words are almost always together in Scripture. We serve one another because it comes out of love, out of love for one another, out of love for, for who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Jesus is, is 24 hours from his death at the point of the Last Supper to the cross. He's less than 24 hours before he'll be hanging on a cross. He sends Judas out. So either a lot of this conversation at the Last Supper is happening in what we call the farewell discourse, John 13 through 17. Just read it with this frame in mind. These are the last things that Jesus gets to say to these men who he spent life with. Peter is in that room with Jesus. I think it's likely that Jesus does a lot of this while he's still around the table after he sends Judas out. But it's also, some scholars believe that Jesus is even on the road walking to Gethsemane and he's still having these conversations with them. In the midst of all that's going on, what would you be thinking about if 24 hours from now you were going to be dead? Jesus is thinking about everyone else but himself. And he says five times in John 13 and 15, in this last time period he has with his disciples. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. You getting tired of hearing it? He says it one more time. Love one another. Five times. Why does Peter say, above all, keep loving one another earnestly? This is who Jesus is. The loving, most loving person that's ever Ben, the God-man. Love sits at the center of the universe. Love is in the, this eternal communion between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Isn't it amazing? Uh, where do you think Peter gets the old idea of love covers a multitude of sins? Man, of anyone who's experienced love that covers sin, Peter has. I mean, he's the one that denied Jesus three times. Can you imagine carrying that until for three days while Jesus, you're waiting on the resurrection? And Jesus tells him he's going to, and he's like, no, I'll die with you. And he denies Jesus. And then what does Jesus do on that shore? And Peter jumps out of the boat and runs to Jesus. Jesus says, Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you. Three times. So love covered a multitude of sins. He had experienced that firsthand with Jesus. And so again, Peter's not just spouting out great theological truth. That's awesome. It is theological truth. This is this is all flowing, every one of the Writers of the New Testament, it's all flowing from this encounter with the most extraordinary man who's ever lived, who did the most extraordinary work that's ever been done. And they can't get enough of it. So it's just coming out of them. It just oozes out of them. And then he, say, he goes on to say, so what are we doing right now? He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Man, there's really important right now in a world that's crazy. For the sake of our prayers that we ask God, give us self-control and sober-mindedness. How important it is that the world right now needs to know that believers and followers of Jesus love. Please, Lord Jesus, quit letting us put our anchor in the sand on truth. First and foremost, we love your truth. We trust your truth. We long to study your truth. But if we have truth without love, we are a clanging symbol, is what Paul says. Love, love should characterize the church in the way that she serves others. Love one another is the second thing. The third thing he says is practice hospitality. Kind of seems like this really practical one in the midst of this, doesn't it? Practice hospitality without grumbling. I just simply simply refer you to uh, Jesus at the Last Supper. You know, it's still in this 24 hours before the cross. What is Jesus doing? He's practicing hospitality with his, with his people. And then the last thing he says in, in verse 10, he says, serve one another with the gifts that you've been given. Isn't it it interesting? In verse 10, if you have it open with me, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Okay, if if you've been dozing off, this is really important. (laughs) As each has received a gift, That means every single one of you sitting here and online, you've been given a gift. What is your gift? Some of you are thinking, man, I don't have any gifts. Like, God's not going to use me. If you knew the number of times I've screwed up, If you knew the amount of shame that I have because sometimes I've really tried to step out and use that gift and it's just been thrown in my face, I'm not going to do it again. Some of you are there and I I encourage you, Like, if you just feel like, man, I, I have no idea what my gifts are, talk to the elders. Talk to Pastor Jimmy. Like, We can help you guys figure those things out. They've got like, Tests and stuff you can take to figure out your spiritual gifts. Um, but it's probably like right there, it's probably pretty natural. But isn't it cool that everyone is sitting in this room and online has, has been given a gift? And what is a gift used for? Is it used for yourself? It's to be used for others to serve other people with. Like that's what the body of Christ talks about. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12. We have all these varied gifts that have been given. And and he says, he says it's uh, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards. Right? What's What's a steward? That's a funny name. I've got a brother named Stuart. I don't know if that... It's an English name. I don't know if it comes from steward. Um, but P- Peter says to, to steward your gifts. Uh, I have a friend of mine who's a, a fisheries biologist. Uh, I have my, my graduate degree in fisheries biology. He and I used to talk a lot. He's, he actually stayed in that field and as a fisheries biologist, a fisheries manager up, up on Lake Erie. Is anybody from Lake Erie area? I know, like, no. Lake Erie is known for its world-class walleye population, Uh, and my friend uh, manages the entire population of walleye on Lake Erie. That's a pretty big job. So he does all these studies and uh, telemetry work and all this kind of stuff, really fascinating stuff, and uh, his name's Chris, and I said, Chris, you know what's cool about this? Like, you're stewarding God's creation because... Left to man's feudal hearts, we 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 like to destroy God's creation. And you're getting to steward it, you're getting to care for it, and to take good care of it as a steward. And I just think I think when when he says um, when Peter talks about stewarding these gifts, are you cultivating them as it? is it something like bad stewardship would be taking the gift and using it to serve yourself and your own end. That would be bad stewardship of your gift. That's what the world of Adam says, right? In full service, uh, in full use of your gift, it's to serve self. Good stewardship is, the idea is, to look after something with great care and use it, for the benefit of someone else. right, my friend is managing the Lake Erie population for the sake of everyone who comes there and fishes and eats those fish. It's a benefit to other people. Think of an airline stewardess. If the airline stewardess or steward didn't take care of you on the plane, you could be in danger. So they care for you. It's watching over something with great care. Charles Spurgeon gives a, a, a really cool illustration that Jimmy put me onto. It's called The Carrot and the Horse. Let me, get, let me read it to you. It says, oh, I just realized this story begins with Once Upon a Time. So just like all good stories. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, My Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown and ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So he turned to go, but the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this, and he said, My, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? Hmm. The benefit, interjection of me, the benefits... Am I following Jesus because I think I'm going to get something better? My, if, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if I gave this king something better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. And he bowed low, and he said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred and ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you. And he took the horse and simply dismissed him. (laughs) The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. The gardener, was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. He longed for something in return because he was giving because he wanted something back. And the gardener gave because the king was his treasure. I want to close with with this illustration or to share something with you like Serving is, is kind of like this double gift of grace. So it's a gift that you've been given, meant to use to serve others with. So you've been given the gift of God, his, you experience his grace because of that. And then when you go and you use your gift to serve someone else, guess who else is a recipient of God's grace? Other people. It's like this cool double gift. Think about, I want to I close with this story from Luke 14. Um, Luke 14 is one of my, is just a really cool story. Jesus goes to this dinner party and he shows up at the dinner party and it's really cool because Luke says, Jesus noticed where everyone was seated. Like Jesus walks into the party and he's like, hmm, I see where Pastor Jimmy's sitting I see where Elder David's sitting. Mm -hmm. No, he doesn't. doesn't, Don't think of it that way. But Jesus sees, like where everybody's seated at this dinner party. And he knows something, as C.S. Lewis calls it, the inner ring. That they're longing to be part of the inner ring. And the closer they sit to the host of the party, the more benefit for themselves. And he called it, like Jesus is an invited guest. And he like, Calls everyone out in front of everyone like you're here and you're taking the seat of honor. Perhaps next time you should wait and be invited to sit in seats and then you'll maybe move up to a higher place. And Jesus just loves people so well that he's so honest and he tells them the truth in this moment. And as if that's not enough, it's like could you imagine being invited to dinner to somebody's house? and you walk in, and all the guests are there, and you turn to the host. This is what Jesus does next. And you go, "Uh, yeah, you invited the wrong people. And he says this in front of everyone. So he's first lovingly told the guest, you're going for the seat of honor because you want to serve yourself. And then he lovingly goes to the host and he said, you've invited the wrong people because when you invite them, you know that they're going to have give you a benefit and you're going to get something in return. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not like that. My kingdom, I, the one who should have been served, came to serve. And I came to serve the least of these and to give them the greatest gift and the greatest treasure of myself. And so I want to close just by, hopefully this will work, just by showing you a, a quick video. And this is, uh, this is a really powerful video. So Jimmy, we're just going to watch this video and then go straight into the Lord's Supper. Uh, And when you see this, I just want you, this is how Jesus closes Luke 14 in that dinner party. And I just want you to think through, if I were called to serve, what would that look like? What would that look like in my own life? Who would I invite? Who would be a part of it? And Jesus is... uh, So beautiful in the way he does this. Is that showing up up there? Spinning. Oh, there it goes, I think. There we go.
1: When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do so, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please, excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please, excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full.